Chapter Seven of Zanoni by Edward Bulwer Lytton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Learn to be poor in spirit, my son, if you would penetrate that sacred night which environs truth. Learn of the sages to allow to the devils no power in nature, since the fatal stone has shut them up in the depths of the abyss. Learn of the philosophers always to look for natural causes in all extraordinary events, and when such natural causes are wanting, recur to God, the Count de Gabalis. All these additions to his knowledge of Zanoni, picked up in the various lounging places and resorts that he frequented, were unsatisfactory to Glyndon. That night Viola did not perform at the theatre and the next day still disturbed by bewildered fancies and averse to the sober and sarcastic companionship of mervali glyndon sauntered musingly into the public gardens and paused under the very tree under which he had first heard the voice that had exercised upon his mind so singular an influence the gardens were deserted he threw himself on one of the seats placed beneath the shade and again in the midst of his reverie the same cold shudder came over him which zanoni had so distinctly defined and to which he had ascribed so extraordinary a cause he roused himself with a sudden effort and started to see seated next to him a figure hideous enough to have personated one of the malignant beings of whom zanoni had spoken it was a small man dressed in a fashion strikingly at variance with the elaborate costume of the day an affectation of homeliness and poverty approaching to squalor in those loose trousers coarse as a ship's sail in the rough jacket which appeared rent wilfully into holes and the black ragged tangle locks that streamed from their confinement under a woollen cap accorded but ill with other details which spoke of comparative wealth the shirt open at the throat was fastened by a brooch of gaudy stones, and two pendant massive gold chains announced the foppery of two watches. The man's figure, if not absolutely deformed, was yet marvellously ill-favoured, his shoulders high and square, his chest flattened, as if crushed in, his gloveless hands were knotted at the joints, and large, bony, and muscular dangled from lean, emaciated wrists, as if not belonging to them his features had the painful distortion sometimes seen in the countenance of a cripple large exaggerated with the nose nearly touching the chin the eyes small but glowing with a cunning fire as they dwelt on glyndon and the mouth was twisted into a grin that displayed rows of jagged black broken teeth yet over this frightful face there still played a kind of disagreeable intelligence an expression at once astute and bold and as Glyndon, recovering from the first impression, looked again at his neighbor, he blushed at his own dismay, and recognized a French artist, with whom he had formed an acquaintance, and who was possessed of no inconsiderable talents in his calling. Indeed it was to be remarked that this creature, whose externals were so deserted by the graces, particularly delighted in designs aspiring to majesty and grandeur. Though his coloring was hard and shallow, as was that generally of the French school at the time, his drawings were admirable for symmetry, simple elegance, and classic vigor. At the same time they unquestionably wanted ideal grace. He was fond of selecting subjects from Roman history, rather than from the copious world of Grecian beauty, or those still more sublime stories of scriptural record from which Raphael and Michelangelo borrowed their inspirations his grandeur was not that of gods and saints but mortals 
His delineation of beauty was that which the eye cannot blame and the soul does not acknowledge. In a word, as it was said of Dionysius, he was an anthropographos, or painter of men. It was also a notable contradiction in this person, who was addicted to the most extravagant excesses in every passion, whether of hate or love, implacable in revenge and insatiable in debauch and he was in the habit of uttering the most beautiful sentiments of exalted purity and genial philanthropy. The world was not good enough for him. He was, to use the expressive German phrase, a world better-er. Nevertheless, his sarcastic lip often seemed to mock the sentiments he uttered, as if it sought to insinuate that he was above even the world he would construct. Finally, this painter was in close correspondence with the Republicans of Paris, and was held to be one of those missionaries whom, from the earliest period of the Revolution, the regenerators of mankind who were pleased to dispatch to the various states yet shackled, whether by actual tyranny or wholesome laws. Certainly the historian of Italy has observed there was no city in Italy where these new doctrines would be received with greater favor than Naples partly from the lively temper of the people, principally because the most hateful feudal privileges, however partially curtailed some years before by the great minister, Tanucini, still presented so many daily and practical evils as to make change wear a more substantial charm than the meretricious bloom on the cheek of the harlot. Novelty. This man, whom I will call Jean-Nicot, was therefore an oracle among the younger and bolder spirits of Naples and before glyndon had met zanoni the former had not been among the least dazzled by the eloquent aspirations of the hideous philanthropist it is so long since we have met cher confere said nicot drawing his seat nearer to glyndon's that you cannot be surprised that i see you with delight and even take the liberty to intrude on your meditations they were of no agreeable nature said glyndon and never was intrusion more welcome you will be charmed to hear said nicot drawing several letters from his bosom that the good work proceeds with marvellous rapidity mihibo indeed is no more but mort diable the french people are now a mihibo themselves with this remark m nicot proceeded to read to and comment upon several animated and interesting passages in his correspondence in which the word virtue was introduced twenty-seven times and god not once and then Charmed by the cheering prospectus thus opened to him, he began to indulge in those anticipations of the future, the outline of which we have already seen in the eloquent extravagance of Condorcet. All the old virtues were dethroned for a new pantheon. Patriotism was a narrow sentiment. Philanthropy was to be its successor. No love that did not embrace all mankind, as warm for the Indus and the Pole, as for the hearth of home, was worthy of the breast of a generous man. Opinion was to be free as air, and in order to make it so, it was necessary to exterminate all those opinions were not the same as Monsieur Jean Nicot. Much of this amused, much revolted Glyndon. But when the painter turned to dwell upon a science that all should comprehend, and the results of which all should enjoy. A science that, springing from the soil of equal institutions and equal mental cultivation, should give to all the races of men wealth without labor, and a life longer than the patriarchs, without care. Then Glyndon listened with interest and admiration, not unmixed with awe. Observe, said Nicot, how much that we now cherish as a virtue will be rejected as meanness, 
our oppressors for instance preach to us the excellence of gratitude gratitude the confession of inferiority what so hateful to a noble spirit as the humiliating sense of obligation but where there is equality there can be no means for power thus to enslave merit the benefactor and the client will alike cease and in the meantime said a low voice at hand and in the meantime jean nicot the two artists started and glyndon recognized zanoni he gazed with a brow of unusual sternness on nicot who lumped together as he sat looked up at him askew and with an expression of fear and dismay upon his distorted countenance ho ho monsieur jean nicot thou whose fearest neither god nor devil why fearest thou the eye of a man it is not the first time i have been witness to your opinions on the infirmity of gratitude said zanoni nico suppressed an exclamation and after gloomily surveying zanoni with an eye villainous and sinister but full of hate impotent and unutterable said i know you not what would you of me your absence leave us nico sprang forward a step with hands clenched and showing his teeth from ear to ear like a wild beast incensed zanoni stood motionless and smiled at him in scorn nico halted abruptly as if fixed and fascinated by the look shivered from head to foot and sullenly and with a visible effort as if impelled by a power not his own turned away glyndon's eyes followed him in surprise and what you know of this man asked zanoni i know him as one like myself a follower of art of art do not so profane that glorious word what nature is to god art should be to man a sublime beneficent genial and warm creation that wretch may be a painter not an artist and pardon me if i ask you what you know of one you thus disparage i know thus much that you are beneath my care if it be necessary to warn you against him his own lips show the hideousness of his heart why should i tell you of the crimes he has committed he speaks crime you do not seem signor zanoni to be one of the admirers of the drawing revolution perhaps you are prejudiced against the man because you dislike the opinions what opinions glyndon paused somewhat puzzled to define but at length said nay i must wrong you for you of all men i suppose cannot discredit the doctrine that preaches the infinite improvement of the human species you are right the few in every age improve the many the many now may be as wise as the few were but improvement is still at a standstill if you tell me what the many now are as wise as the few are i comprehend you you will not allow the law of universal equality law if the whole world conspired to enforce the falsehood they could not make it law level all conditions to-day and you only smooth away all obstacles to tyranny to-morrow a nation that aspires to equality is unfit for freedom throughout all creation from the archangel to the worm from olympus to the pebble from the radiant and completed planet to the nebula that hardens through the ages of mist and slime into the habitable world the first law of nature is inequality harsh doctrine if applied to states are the cruel disparities of life never to be removed disparities of the physical life oh let's hope so but the disparities of the intellectual and the moral never universal equality of intelligence of mind of genius of virtue 
no teacher left to the world no men wiser better than others were it not an impossible condition what a hopeless prospect for humanity no while the world lasts the sun will gild the mountain-top before it shines upon the plain diffuse all the knowledge the earth contains equally over all mankind to-day and some men will be wiser than the rest to-morrow and this is not a harsh but a loving law the real law of improvement the wiser the few in one generation the wiser will be the multitude the next as zanoni thus spoke they moved on through the smiling gardens and the beautiful bay lay sparkling in the noontide a gentle breeze just cooled the sunbeam and stirred the ocean and in the inexpressible clearness of the atmosphere there was something that rejoiced the senses the very soul seemed to glow lighter and purer in that lucid air and these men to commence their era of improvement and equality are jealous even of the creator they would deny an intelligence a god said zanoni as if involuntarily are you an artist and looking on the world can you listen to such a dogma between god and genius there is necessary link there is almost a correspondent language well said the pythagorean a good intellect is the chorus of divinity struck and touched with these sentiments which he little expected to fall from one to whom he ascribed those powers which the superstitions of childhood ascribe to the darker agencies glyndon said and yet you have confessed that your life separated from that of others is one that man should dread to share is there then a connection between magic and religion magic and what is magic when the traveller beholds in persia the ruins of palaces and temples the ignorant inhabitants inform him they were the work of magicians what is beyond their own power the vulgar cannot comprehend to be lawfully in the power of others but if by magic you mean the perpetual research amongst all that is more latent and obscure in nature i answer i profess that magic and that he who does so comes but nearer to the fountain of all belief knowest thou not that magic was taught in the schools of old but how and by whom as the last and most solemn lesson by the priests who administered to the temple and you who would be a painter is not there a magic also in that art you would advance must you not after long study of the beautiful that has been seize upon a new and airy combinations of a beauty that is to be see you not that the grander art whether of poet or of painter ever seeking for the true abhors the real that you must seize nature as her master not lacking her as her slave you demand mystery over past a conception of the future has not the art that is truly noble for its domain in the future and the past you would conjure the invisible beings to your charm and what is painting but the fixing into substance the invisible are you discontented with this world this world was never meant for genius to exist it must create another what magician can do more nay what science can do as much there are two avenues from the little passions and the drear calamities of earth both lead to heaven and away from hell art and science but art is more godlike than science science discovers art creates you have faculties that may command art be contented with your lot the astronomer who catalogues the stars cannot add one atom to the universe the poet can call a universe from the atom the chemist may heal with his drugs the infirmities of the human form the painter or sculptor 
fixes into everlasting youth forms divine which no disease can ravage and no years impair renounce those wandering fancies that lead you now to myself and now to yon orator of the human race to us two who are the antipodes of each other your pencil is your wand your canvas may raise the utopias fairer than condorcet dreams of i press not yet for your decision but what man of genius ever asked for more to cheer his path to the grave than love and glory but said glyndon fixing his eyes earnestly on zanoni if there be a power to baffle the grave itself zanoni's brow darkened and were this so he said after a pause would it be so sweet a lot to outlive all you loved and to recoil from every human tie perhaps the fairest immortality on earth is that of a noble name you do not answer me you equivocate i have read of the long lives far beyond the date common experiences assigns to man persisted glyndon which some of the alchemists enjoyed the gold elixir is but a fable if not and these men discovered it they died because they refused to live there may be a mournful warning in your conjecture turn once more to the easel and the canvas so saying zanoni waved his hand and with downcast eyes and slow step bent his way back into the city the goddess wisdom to some she is the goddess great to some the milk cow of the field their care is but to calculate what butter she will yield from schiller the last conversation with zanoni left upon the mind of glyndon a tranquilizing and salutary effect from the confused mists of his fancy glittered forth again those happy golden schemes which part from the young ambition of art to play in the air to illumine the space like rays that kindle from the sun and with these projects mingled also the vision of a love purer and serener than his life yet had known his mind went back to that fair child of genius when the forbidden fruit is not yet tasted and we know of no land beyond the eden which is gladdened by an eve insensibly before him there rose the scenes of a home with his art sufficing for all excitement and viola's love circling occupation with happiness and content and in the midst of these fantasies of a future that might be at his command he was recalled to the present day by clear strong voice of mervali the man of common sense whoever has studied the lives of persons with whom the imagination is stronger than the will who suspect their own knowledge of actual life and are aware of their facility to impressions will have observed the influence which a homely vigorous worldly understanding obtains over such natures it was thus with glyndon his friend had often extricated him from danger and saved him from the consequences of imprudence and there was something in mervali's voice alone that dampened his enthusiasm and often made him yet more ashamed of noble impulses than weak conduct for mervali though a downright honest man could not sympathize with the extravagance of generosity any more than that of presumption and credulity he walked the straight line of life and felt an equal contempt for the man who wandered up the hillsides no matter whether to chase a butterfly or to catch a prospect of the ocean i will tell you your thoughts clarence said mervali laughing though i am no zanoni i know them by the moisture of your eyes and the half smile on your lips you are musing upon that fair perdition the little singer of san carlo the little singer of san carlo 
Glennon colored as he answered. Would you speak thus of her if she were my wife? No, for then any contempt I might venture to feel would be for yourself. One may dislike the duper, but it is the dupe that one despises. Are you sure that I should be a dupe in such a union? Where one whose virtue has been tried by such temptation? Does even a single breath of slander sully the name of Viola Pisani? I know not all the gossip of Naples, and therefore cannot answer. But I know this, that in England no one would believe that a young Englishman of good fortune and respectable birth, who marries a singer from the theatre of Naples, has not been lamentably taken in. I would save you from a fall of position so irretrievable. Think how many mortifications you will be subjected to, how many young men will visit at your house, and how many young wives will as carefully avoid it. I can choose my own career, to which commonplace society is not essential. I can owe the respect of the world to my art, and not to the accidents of birth and fortune. That is, you still persist in your second folly, the absurd ambition of dabbing canvas. Heaven forbid I should say anything against the laudable industry of one who follows such a profession for the sake of subsistence. But with means and connections that will raise you in life, why voluntarily sink into a mere artist? As an accomplishment in leisure moments, it is all very well in its way, but as the occupation of existence, it is a frenzy. Artists have been friends of princes. Very rarely so, I fancy, in sober England. There in the great centre of political aristocracy, what men respect is the practical, not the ideal. Just suffer me to draw two pictures of my own. Clarence Glyndon returns to England. He marries a lady of fortune equal to his own of friends and parentage that advanced rational ambition. Clarence Glyndon, thus a wealthy and respectable man, of good talents, of bustling energies then concentrated, enters into practical life. He has a house at which he can receive those whose acquaintance is both advantage and honor. He has leisure which he can devote to useful studies. His reputation, built on a solid base, grows in men's mouths. He attaches himself to a party. He enters political life, and new connections serve to promote his objects. At the age of five-and-forty, what, in all probability, may Clarence Glyndon be? Since you are ambitious, I leave that question for you to decide. Now to turn to the other picture. Clarence Glyndon returns to England with a wife who can bring him no money, unless he lets her out on the stage, so handsome that everyone asks who she is and every one hears the celebrated singer Pisani. Clarence Glyndon shuts himself up to grind colors and paint pictures in the grand historical school, which nobody buys. There is even a prejudice against him, as not having studied in the academy, as being an amateur. And who is Mr. Clarence Glyndon? Oh, the celebrated Pisani's husband, what else? Oh, he exhibits those large pictures. Poor man! They have merit in their own way. But Tenier and Watteau are more convenient and almost as cheap. Clarence Glyndon, with an easy fortune while single, has a large family which his fortune, unaided by marriage, can just rear up to calling more plebeian than his own. He retires into the country to save and to paint. He grows slovenly and discontented. The world does not appreciate him, he says, and he runs away from the world. At the age of forty-five what will Clarence Glyndon be? Your ambition shall decide that question also. 
"'If all men were as worldly as you,' said Glyndon, rising, "'there would never have been an artist or a poet.' "'Perhaps we should just do as well without them,' answered Mervali. "'Is it not time to think of dinner? "'The mullets here are remarkably fine.' End of chapter 7 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com